You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on Music Tectonics, the podcast where we explore the wild intersections between music and tech. I'm Tristra Neuer Jaeger, strategist at music PR firm Rock Paper Scissors. Today I'm speaking with Bruno Guez, a music entrepreneur and technologist who's quietly built a remarkable career. It's taken him from work with Island Records and Cirque du Soleil to building Revelator, a music rights management platform that has spent years developing ways to apply decentralized tech, and we'll talk more about what exactly we mean by that in a minute, and smart contracts to music data and royalties, among many, many other things. Bruno, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Nice to be here. I always love to kick things off by hearing about where uh, where our guest passions for music have come from. So I know this is going to be a long story, but tell me a bit about how you first got into music and what ignited your interest and passion in music. Oh, wow. Okay, well, let, let's go back a, a few decades. Um, I started DJing at the age of 18, um, started a radio show, um, on KCRW called Shortwave when I was 23. And I did that for about seven years. And during that time, I incubated my record label, Quango, uh, out of uh, the radio show. I was playing a lot of music that uh, didn't have US distribution at the time. And this is before digital, so we didn't have you know global digital distribution uh, and streaming platforms. So if you had music in Europe, that you wanted to distribute in America, you actually needed a label or a distributor to help you do that. So by discovering music and you know promoting music on the radio, I started you know getting into licensing music and working with artists and developing them for the American market. And that kind of took me you know for a couple of decades uh, you know, of, of marketing music, whether it's Critter Dorfmeister or Bittersweet or Zero Seven. You know, the label was known for being a tastemaker in that early, uh, you know, world music to early downtempo electronic trip hop uh, era and ambient era of music in the late 90s. So I've, I can say I've always, you know, been passionate about music going back to the age of, you know, nine when I started playing drums and, you know, uh, started being in bands when I was a teenager playing keyboards and I loved electronic music. I had synthesizers, you know, growing up and I was crazy enough to kind of make a lot of, a lot of noise and a lot of, a lot of interesting sounds. Uh, I studied ethnomusicology at UCLA. Um, so I never really did anything else besides music my whole life. Um, so I guess that can kind of anchor the discussion around my passion. Well, that makes a ton of sense. And um, Kruder and Dorfmeister, uh, I got to get a little fangirl right here. They're a favorite. <laughs> so you had this deep connection to music and you truly, I, I can know just from other conversations we've had that it really matters to you not only to get great music out there, but that artists can flourish and continue to do the creative, cool stuff that they're doing. So tell me a bit how you moved from um, being, you know, a DJ and on the radio and, and making music to um to actually wanting to promote artists' work and take your label to the next level? Sure. I mean, I ran a label for 25 years, and I watched the space go from analog to digital and from downloads to streaming, and I'm watching again 
you know, uh, distribution and business models changing again with the digital asset kind of you know, explosion in the last uh, several years. The challenge I faced, you know, uh, when I moved from Los Angeles to where I spent 30 years of my life and in my career was kind of really centered over there. When I moved to Israel about 10 years ago, I found myself at a crossroads, you know, wanting to run the label, but now I was remote and I didn't have my office and my team to actually kind of do the marketing and promotion and royalties and accounting and distribution workflows. So I decided to take it upon myself to say, okay, let me modernize my labels, you know, business by moving some of these services in the cloud and kind of creating software to help me manage my business. And part of that was, you know, my own need to kind of have a digital transformation as a business, which was really lagging and still is lagging, you know, 10 years later in, you know, beyond digital distribution, there's, you know, very little, um, you know, uh, tooling and uh, financial infrastructure in place for creative industries in general. But uh, the second part of, of that beyond my own needs was how do I provide more transparency uh, in reporting and royalty workflows to the artists that I work with? And I wanted to kind of make it easier than needing to employ 10 people to run a business. Um, and for many reasons, you know, when downloads you know, were booming, it was easy to spend money you know, on marketing because you knew you were gonna make some money on the digital side. But then when streaming came along, the first five to seven years, I would say, were really challenging because the subscriber base wasn't really there yet to support the you know the growth of uh, revenue coming from streaming platforms, and that didn't start really happening. I think the turning point was around 2015. So between 2007, when Spotify came out to 2015, you know there was a gap, and I kind of felt that you know by 20 by 2009, I kind of saw you know the download being kind of cannibalized by streaming and I knew that was going to take some time so there had to be a need to you know really uh, decrease risk and exposure um, if you're going to make less money you got to spend less money in order to not go belly up so part of the you know the shift for me to want to move to the cloud and build software was really so that my label could survive and I could actually operate more effectively with less people and then be able to also you know, provide a, a better service to the rights holders that I worked with. And those efforts eventually evolved into Revelator. Can you tell us a bit about what Revelator does? Sure. So exactly. So I started initially Revelator as a solution to my own needs and then kind of opened that up after about three years of development of building an integrated you know, set of tools for record labels and distributors to manage their supply chain, their metadata, their catalog, the rights administration, the reporting and data, you know, financial reporting and consumption reporting that comes um, from the supply chain, from the streaming platforms, as well as royalties and analytical workflows and payment workflows to rights holders. So we've kind of built, you know, pretty much all of the, the services that are required to run a business online in the music industry um, and brought all of that within a platform, within one subscription, and you know we cater to distributors and and uh, record labels and artist management companies and artists provide a B2B software solution for them to help them manage their business more efficiently and then provide also a B2B to C platform so that they can cater to 
providing uh, those solutions to their rights holders and artists they work with. Now that is your foundational business right now, and you're about to take a big step forward, or you've taken a big step forward rather, and we will get to that right after the break. Do you have your ticket to the Music Tectonics Conference? I'm planning this event for you, podcast listeners. The Music Tectonics team is organizing keynotes, panels, and networking with music tech innovators, entrepreneurs, investors, and deep thinkers. And I would love to see you there. But time's running out to get a special early bird rate at musictectonics.com. If you lock in your conference ticket before August 3rd, you'll pay just $69. That's a pretty great price to pay for three experiences online, in the universe, and on a carousel by the sea. Mix and match to get a conference experience like no other. One ticket gets you access to online events October 25th through October 27th and in-person events outdoors by the sea in Los Angeles on November 2nd. That's three mornings online with keynotes, interactive panels, and speed networking on Hopin's video conference but better platform and three afternoons in the metaverse with keynotes, instrument demos, exhibitor booths, and chance meetings in Deggy World, the avatar-based conference campus, no VR headset required. Then, one day in Los Angeles of in-person networking in real-world spaces way beyond the typical conference hotel. Bring that stack of business cards that's been gathering dust. You're going to need them. Don't wait any longer and get your early bird ticket now at musictectonics.com before the price goes up. Hey, we're back with Bruno Gez of Revelator, and now we get to talk about some really interesting initiatives that Revelator and Bruno and his team have been working on for quite some time. Uh, but first, I want to hear a little bit, Bruno, about, you know, you were fascinated by cloud technology, and you harnessed that to build Revelator. Now you're trying to um, in- embrace another new wave of technology. Um, we can call it a bunch of different things, Web3, decentralized tech, uh, or even the dreaded blockchain. So I was curious, how did you first get interested in in this technology and how did you first start exploring it and thinking about it in terms of the music business and what it could do for music? Sure. So going back to 2014, 2015, you know, I started paying attention to what was going on with, you know, the Bitcoin phenomenon and and the rise of, you know, Ethereum and smart contracts. And I was fascinated by blockchain technology and looking at that as a potential solution to you know, managing rights uh, on, on the blockchain and managing at least having a source of truth for understanding who you know owns the rights to a song or to a recording and being able to manage financial transactions against those assets so that you could actually have you know transparency in, in reporting and and payment settlement, basically royalty payment settlement. So I wasn't too convinced in 2016 yet that the technology was mature enough, but I kind of paid attention to it for a couple of years. I ran a couple of POCs around, you know, tracking assets within a podcast or using smart contracts for kind of managing those uh, those rights. It wasn't until 2018 that we started really understanding how to crystallize our strategy around a digital wallet and trying to kind of make that the the centerpiece of a rights holder or what we call the artist wallet so that they could actually manage, you know, from a non-custodial perspective, they would manage their own private keys, but they would manage all the rights and be able to define 
their splits with their collaborators and easily be able to transfer shares between the different co-creators that uh, participate in those songs or recordings and then be able to kind of manage collecting royalties directly to a smartphone uh, through a mobile application. So initially, you know, I've been kind of frustrated with how long it took to process royalties. My whole career, going back two and a half decades, you know, we used to do contracts that were semi-annual in accounting, and that was very common, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s. But I hated the fact that it would take so long to run royalties, especially nowadays where we've seen a lot of progress, especially at the distributor level, where reporting and royalties can happen on a monthly basis. And now, you know, with a blockchain technology and smart contracts, we can actually accelerate the whole financial flows of IP to a daily cycle. So we've kind of uh, been able to prove and demonstrate that both with rights organizations by tokenizing or digitizing, if you wish, um, performance royalties uh, coming from broadca broadcast radio. And we did a, a test with Tiosto in 2019 where we could actually uh, demonstrate that we could pay 19 songwriters and publishers on a daily basis every time their songs played on the radio, we would accrue those royalties into a smart contract and apply the local tariffs in Finland for a radio broadcast and be able to understand exactly how much, you know, how much money each of those songs you know, uh, were accruing on a daily cycle and be able to provide the, the rights organizations with the ability to make those payments to those contracts, which would distribute money to those 19 people, rights holders. Then last year, we did a similar um, pilot with a major publisher I can't disclose, but it was around mechanical royalty settlement and really increasing the speed of, of settlement and pipeline visibility, you know, basically moving from 150 days to about 30 days. So saving them, you know, almost three months, uh, three to four months of, of time where they actually don't have any visibility into the flow of, of mechanical royalties for their catalog and their songwriters. So part of it is focused around the data, being able to access and process the data faster, and then being able to attribute and match that uh, usage data against the rights, uh, which we encapsulate into the smart contract, and then be able to kind of um, automate the split uh, and the settlement of those payments directly from the smart contract. Can we have a quick sidebar? Um, Bruno, I think it's important for people to understand what exactly a smart contract is and how it works. Could you give us like a layman's breakdown on what exactly those are and why they are so much more efficient than um, standard methods? Sure. Well, standard methods is a paper contract, which is offline and probably a you know CSV or Excel trying to kind of bring all of the data into an Excel and run pivots and try to figure out how much each of the songs, you know, are, are generating and be able to kind of turn that into a PDF, which becomes a royalty statement. And all of that is manual, prone to error and offline. There's no processes that are really efficient there. A uh, smart contract is a piece of code that runs on a blockchain and basically, you know, is executable so that it holds certain rules, um, it's actually very basic, but you can extend the functionality of a contract uh, by developing, by actually writing code. 
and defining what the business rules you want or the behavior you want it to do. In the case of our smart contracts, we're using an ERC-20 uh, structure to keep track of splits, percentages, and wallet addresses. So at its most basic form, we keep track of who gets paid and how much they get paid. And when a payment transaction is sent to the contract, it automatically executes the money distribution to those wallet addresses, the who, and the split percentages, which is the how much. And then that takes care of sending the money to each of the rights holder for their share. Great, thanks. That, that's really helpful. Yeah. So it's like an automated, uh, an automated accounting system in a way. Like if you had a tiny little accountant that could go around and work, <laughs> work getting people there, getting people paid as quickly as possible. It's a, a big change in paradigm um, in certain ways in certain corners of the music business. And the, the beautiful thing about it is, you know, everyone's going to receive their share on a mobile device. They're going to get a push notification saying, hey, you just received $100 for your you know, 3% share of this song. And so the, the whole push notification is kind of a novelty because it doesn't exist in the music industry. You never get a push notification when you receive money. So this is actually a, a nice step up in terms of communication and alerts around money flow or when you receive shares of a song or when you assign shares of a song, you are notified in near real time. And when you receive the money, you just open up your wallet and you see the money flow and the activity and you can verify that that payment is actually real. That's great. So I think I'd like to spend just a few more minutes talking about some of these pilots that you ran. And um, just for our listeners out there, there's been a lot of attempts to uh have a decentralized approach to music rights management. And it's amazing to hear about one actually functioning almost in the wild. Um, on the publishing side, that's a real bugaboo, right? Like that is a hard part of rights to manage because there are so many entities, so many territories, so many rules and regulations that vary wildly from place to place. And we're talking, you know, what, 200 or some territories. How um, How are you building... Revelator, or how are you thinking? And, and Revelator's decentralized um, uh, features are, are, are called original works. How is original works trying to sort of build for that future when you could embrace all of that crazy publishing uh, data and uh, royalty management? So, obviously, the recording side of the industry is a lot easier to manage than the publishing. Uh, you know, the artists, the rights holders, the labels have much simpler, you know, splits and agreements than the publishers and their sub-publishers and their different administrators for different baskets of rights in different territories. So that creates a whole slew of issues around um, make, making sure the system keeps getting updated on a territory by territory when rights change hands. And I think the fact that there isn't you know, a, one ledger that keeps track of all this information where you have dynamic reconciliation means that every process is very, very manual and very ambiguous and opaque. So the first part really is, you know, having done um, royalty settlement, both for recorded music and publishing, you know, on a blockchain using smart contracts, we've kind of learned how to deal with all the data structures, uh, you know, both for both sides of the equation on the composition and the recording. So that's the, the first big thing. Secondly, is we've learned how to process, you know, both usage data um, and attribute it 
to those smart contracts. So we understand the data flow and the attribution and the execution of those payments. So that's the second thing. That's the second big step. The, the third, I think, you know, is really writing conditional logic and enabling smart contracts to be uh, expanded in terms of their programming and their composability so that you could have a contract party to another contract. So you can manage the different baskets of rights, whether it's mechanicals or performances or synchronization rights into different contracts, and then you could break them down by territory and define who the splits are in those territories for each of those baskets of rights. So you could have a contract that are parties to another contract. And that's the way we're thinking about it ultimately is what we call nested uh, contracts or what we call contract chaining. So we chain contracts to each other. Wow. Um, speaking of processing, I think I need a minute to process that. And we'll be right back and talk to Bruno more about decentralization and music. I have some exciting news for music tech startups. Applications are open for our second annual music tech pitch competition, part of the 2021 Music Tectonics Conference. We've teamed up with BandLab to make this year's event even more awesome. So here it is. BandLab presents Swimming with Narwhals, a music tech startup competition. Startups across any part of the music tech ecosystem are invited to apply with a new additional emphasis on music creation and fan-facing companies. Apply at musictectonics.com by August 16th, 2021. To be eligible, your startup must have a valuation under $2 million US, and you must purchase a conference ticket. Luckily for you, tickets are available at an early bird rate of $69 through August 2nd, 2021. Our jury will select 10 semi-finalists to pitch at Music Tectonics online pre-conference events. Four finalists will then go on to pitch at the online conference October 25th through 27th, 2021. Best of all, Band Lab's investment arm, Caldecott Ventures, has earmarked up to $50,000 to invest in one of our winners. We won't throw you in a ruthless shark tank. We invite you instead to swim with the narwhals, the unicorns of the sea. Learn more and apply at musictectonics.com. Hey, we're back talking to Bruno Gez of Revelator about how he and his team are tackling um, one of the thorniest problems in the music business, namely rights administration. Um, and how we were just having a great overview of how you guys have tried to manage uh, rights using decentralized technology. However, there are some challenges there, and you just mentioned you know, the difficulties of publishing because there's no authoritative centralized source for who owns what in what territory. What are some of the biggest challenges to your mind facing decentralized tech in the music business? What would, would, need, would, uh, what would need to change for us to truly decentralize the music business, if that's even desirable or possible? What do you think? So I don't think it's possible right away. I think it's, you know, you have to take baby steps and you have to go where the value is and what provides a lot of value to people to convince them that this is the future and this is a path forward. So initially I think that's around faster payments because the moment people start to have near real time reporting and very granular and transactional reporting and be able to receive payments in a more you know, digital and finance kind of way, uh, then I think we're, 
making a lot of progress in in, in getting gaining mind share that hey the music industry payment system and creator payments need to change and there are tools that are actually providing that so i think the value is going to come from faster payments initially uh, that's one thing the the second thing for adoption is user experience making sure that a lot of these applications that are building on top of blockchain protocols have a decent you know or or human like uh, user experience part of the challenges with adoption in crypto overall is it's so cryptic you know you have to understand how to manage private keys and mnemonic phrases and and it's challenging to to keep track of different wallets you may have uh, and understand how to move money in and out of those wallets and on-ramp and off-ramps is still too much friction for the majority of users. And the moment you start to go back to an email and password paradigm, then you become you know, a central point of, of, of failure because if you provide a custody and that, cust that custody gets hacked, then those wallets get hacked ultimately. So if you really want to do a decentralized and non-custodial uh, type of security uh, protocol, then people have to be expected to understand how to maintain th their own security as it relates to their wallets, which is not easy for most people. So going back to the user experience and making the application layer really simple to use and really friendly is, I think, one of the biggest challenges and you know, probably one of the biggest opportunities as well to see uh, white, you know, white stream um, adoption. The second part is understanding how to manage all those rights on chain so there can be more dynamic reconciliation. And part of the challenges I see there are the fact that publishers uh, are always fighting for you know, shares of rights and always changing hands rights change hands people buy catalogs and new administrators come on or come off you know for certain territories for different sets of rights so being able to manage that more dynamically you know where the blockchain could keep track of all that information so that any given time there is a source of truth on chain uh, as opposed to having off-chain processes that are very manual so part of the challenge with that obviously is trying to get on one on one hand people to agree to what those terms are and systems in place to deal with conflict resolution disputes and claiming and as long as there is no system that a decentralized system to deal with claims and conflict resolution and dispute resolution then we're back to square one which is a centralized way of trying to kind of figure out how to resolve problems yeah, that's that is fascinating, and it is uh, it's interesting to try to imagine what a decentralized conflict resolution system would be like. Um, I know that people are thinking about it and working on it, but um, humanity is complicated. Uh, I'm curious, Bruno. You've thought a lot about all of these ins and outs. Um, what do you think about the future? Do you? We can get a little bit sci-fi here, a little bit fantastic. You know, if you could have your way or, you know, dream up an interesting future world for the next, say, 10, 15, 20 years from now, 
what what would you love to see? What would your dream world be like when it comes to decentralized solutions or music rights or just music tech and all that fun stuff in general? Well, one thing for sure is the genie's out of the bag. It's not going back. So peer-to-peer technologies are going to continue to grow in um, in impact and value and people's ability to uh, you know access uh, direct to consumer, direct to fan. Uh, the relationship between that artist and the fan is going to get closer and closer, and there won't be as many centralized parties in between, so that there can be transactions you know between artists and their audiences in a very direct and incentivized by design kind of way. Um, people will you know have fan tokens and they'll be able to earn rewards when they actually know perform certain actions like promotion or or marketing they'll be able to actually be able to unlock access to you know virtual streams or exclusive content or nfts the whole process will become more gamified and will become you know much more of a mobile experience the way you engage with the artist there could be community governance of those artists there could be creator coins and social tokens a lot of these you know, primitives are, are already being, you know, uh, developed and tested. I see a, a big potential there. The idea of rolling up all of your digital assets, imagine that all your songs become tokenized as digital assets and then be able to have all of that value across all of your songs rolled up into an index fund. So the artist has its own index fund or perhaps investors want to participate in certain styles of music, but they know nothing about those artists, but they can invest in an ETF, which is an exchange traded fund. Um, Similar to the stock market, you could say, okay, I'm going to take all of the best pop music or best jazz music of this era and be able to create an ETF of that. And that can be a token that can be bought, sold and traded. So I think there are a whole um, experience around IP rights and income streams will become democratized and there'll be wider access to the music rights and to uh, enable you know fans and investors who right now don't really have access to this marketplace even though institutional you know 10 billion dollars of institutional money have gone into buying catalogs and ip the majority of of the world doesn't have access to that asset class so democratizing music IP as an asset class is something I'm passionate about. And I think building a lot of the payment rails, and blockchain infrastructure and decentralized infrastructure to be able to turn a song into a digital asset was the first step. Being able to manage the rights and the royalty flow by connecting you know, Revelator to original works assets was the second step. And now we're getting much closer to being able to have an open marketplace where you know money uh, and value can flow between parties. You mentioned a couple times this idea of tokenization. Can you explain a little bit more about how that would feel from the artist's perspective and from the fan perspective? So what are these tokens? Let's just make sure everyone's on the same page. So think of being able to have fractional ownership of something and being able to participate in uh, owning a piece of something. So an artist, you know, could tokenize a song and say, hey, I'm going to give away 5% of my income stream 
not my ownership, but just my revenue stream to my fans. And I would like to raise a certain amount of money or I would like this in return. And the fans could actually purchase tokens, which represent a fractional share of that income stream and be able to participate in that income stream as the song starts to you know, stream online and collect royalties and distribute royalties. So the whole idea uh, of tokenization is really the fractionalization of value and enabling people to participate in that in exchange for value. So in the case where perhaps it, you know, crowdfunding is one way, equity participation is another way, and then obviously royalty financing and DeFi uh, protocols are another way you could, as an artist, you could say, I'm gonna stake my royalties and I wanna earn interest on my royalties. That could be one way we can use tokens. You could also decide that you wanna get paid faster while the money may come in 60 days, you actually want to access your working capital and your cash flow today. So you might say, hey, I've got $10,000 coming in 60 days. Does somebody want to factor my receivables? And the fans or the investors could say, I'll give you, you know, $9,800 for that 10,000 and I'll take $200 as my commission for giving you the money today and not in 60 days. So there are new you know, decentralized financial protocols and applications that make it really useful um, for artists to get access to capital and, and get paid faster. Um, it, you know, it's hard for an artist to go to the bank and say, I had a million streams on Spotify. Can you give me a loan against that money? Right. That's almost a joke, right? Banks don't work like that. And it's hard for artists to actually be able to get loans or working capital because it's not really a traditional business, right? Uh, unless you can prove that you actually make enough money that that is bankable or investable. Yeah, music assets are difficult to turn into collateral and banks really don't know how to how to classify them or, or deal with them. Yeah, and that's what we were doing ultimately by having Revelator provide all that structuring of financial information and disclosing of that financial information into tokens. Now you understand the real value of that asset. You can see it on a daily basis. You can see the performance of that asset and understand the value as an investor or as the artist. And all of that is managed through crypto economics and through tokenized you know, assets. Great. Thanks for uh, taking us deeper into how this whole system might work and for sharing your insights, Bruno. Um, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. That was fun. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We put out new episodes every week. Want more? Find it at musictectonics.com. You can dig deeper into this episode, learn about our annual conference, get the Music Tectonics app, and sign up for our newsletter. Musictectonics.com has it all. Also, look for Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Clubhouse. And connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, on LinkedIn. Peace. You're listening to Music Tectonics.